I'm Ray Johnston and welcome to your monthly Indigenous STEM special for Take It Black, where you can stay up to date with all the latest happenings in science, technology, engineering and maths. It's also a place where we look at the intersection of traditional knowledge and modern science and speak to people working in this space to find out what they're up to. First, the big tech and science news of October 2020. Take it black. There is water on the moon. But what does this mean? Researchers have put forward more evidence for water on the moon. Previous discoveries of hydration on our moon have been unable to differentiate between water and other combinations of hydrogen and oxygen. However, observations through the SOFIA which is a telescope in a 747 plane, have allowed scientists to detect the unique signature of H2O at the moon's high southern latitudes. Researchers have also measured the moon's permanently shadowed areas, known as cold traps, which could trap water in areas as small as one centimetre in diameter. Scientists suggest cold traps could cover around 40,000 square kilometres of the lunar surface. This means water is produced or delivered on the moon by a range of various processes. And the presence of water may mean future lunar missions could target and access water. Now, since it costs around $35,000 to get a single bottle of Mount Franklin up there, this could be revolutionary for travel within our solar system. Take it black. Noisy open-plan offices full of workers hunched over desks wearing noise-cancelling headphones could soon be a thing of the past, thanks to new research from the Australian National University, the ANU. The ANU researchers have developed a new formula to show how effective noise cancellation technology can be in different spaces. The researchers say the ultimate goal is to achieve a noise-free environment without the use of headphones. Their formula allows them to calculate the best level of cancellation they can achieve in a certain area. For example, an office with a basic desk setup, windows and doors. The challenge is that while noise-cancelling headphones are pretty effective because the ear is such a small surface area, trying to block out noise in a bigger space is much harder. So essentially you have to set up multiple microphones and speakers to cancel out the original noise source. And this, as you can probably imagine, is not always practical. You need a lot of equipment, expertise and time. This study gives the researchers a way to predict how much noise they can cancel out and how much can't be eliminated before bringing in all the tech. And if they develop this technology further, it could not only be incredibly useful in homes and office spaces, but even in planes and cars. Imagine not even being able to hear your kids from the back seat. That'd be good. This study is part of an ongoing collaboration between the Audio and Acoustic Signal Processing Group at ANU College of Engineering and Computer Science and technology giant Sony. Take it black. 
Reviewers around the world, including yours truly, got their hands on the new generation of gaming consoles this month. The Xbox Series X, the Xbox Series S, that's the digital-only version, and the PlayStation 5, which also has a digital-only version. While I can't reveal my full thoughts until closer to the mid-November release dates, I can talk a little about the PlayStation 5 DualSense controller, not DualShock, DualSense, which I played Astro's Playroom with at the Sony office in Sydney. And in a nutshell... It just feels good. Quick side note, Astro's Playroom is perfect for showing off the controller because you can basically use every feature that it offers. So feel is a word that you're going to hear a lot about the PS5 DualSense, and that's because you really do feel everything that's going on in the game in your hands. Even the feel of footsteps changes depending on what you're walking on. The haptic feedback is incredible and the triggers, they adapt their resistance based on everything from the task that you're completing to if your weapon has jammed, you feel everything. Now it's only 70 grams heavier than the PlayStation 4 controller, but it feels so much more solid and that weight is really evenly distributed. It feels more like an Xbox Elite controller than any PlayStation controller before it, but it is still undeniably PlayStation. One really lovely touch is that if you look closely at the grip, it's made up of tiny X's and circles and triangles and squares. So if you've got good eyesight or a good zoom on your camera, take a look at that when you can. Now, with the next-gen release more focused on hardware than games, for obvious reasons, you know, there have been a lot of delays, the PlayStation 5 controller is a standout right now and it just shouts that next-gen is here. It's really exciting. Take it black. The human genome contains more than 3 billion DNA base pairs. It holds the blueprint for every cell in your body. Now, with so much information encoded in the genome, it is critical that researchers have the ability to analyse this data to study its impact on health and diseases. Researchers at the University of Adelaide are pioneering scientific discovery in this space in subjects like human evolution, evolutionary medicine, crop genomes, autoimmune diseases and cancer using Amazon Web Service technology to analyse that data in hours rather than in weeks. Now, Dr. Yasin Sulmi investigates how past extreme events our ancestors were exposed to, like disease or climatic changes like the Ice Age, how those events are impacting our health, our susceptibility to disease and our response to medical treatments today. I spoke with Dr. Sulmi and asked him why it's important for us to know more about the ethics of DNA study, how it all works, and how technology like cloud computing is helping speed up the process. I can't stress uh, the importance of, of doing genetic research in, in a, an ethical framework, and in particular when we're dealing with minority groups. We start by doing community engagements and to 
and we we want we want the communities and the donors of the samples to understand what they're uh, embarking in and why they're donating their samples uh, for and what kind of insight could be extracted from them. Once we sort and tick all those boxes and make sure that we're doing things properly, um, and we're extremely careful uh, about that. And in, in fact, we take a lot more time to do that than other groups in the world. After that, it's this, the process is very simple and pretty straightforward. Uh, we take uh, a biological sample, whether it's saliva or uh, blood, uh, depending on the quality of the DNA that we need for the particular study. Then the samples would go to the lab. We extract the DNA out of, this, out of the blood cells or the saliva cells. And then we send uh, that DNA for sequencing, which is the, the process where we take a biological molecule, a biomolecule, and we digitize it. So there are machines that allow us to read those molecules and will basically give you the data on the other side in an electronic format. The format is no different than um, a text file that you've seen that you've seen before, just a string of letters. The problem is there are a lot of letters, and um, the, the human genome or the the ensemble of human uh, genes, when you put them together, uh, are three billion letters. But when we sequence these things on these machines, we actually get that in multiple copies. So we're talking, uh, we're talking like a medical grade genome is in the order of 100 gigabit, uh, gigabits to up to 300, 400 gigabits. Uh, let's say for a sake of argument, 100, that's probably 10 movies in extreme high quality. So probably on a look on a modern laptop, you can store a couple of those, but you definitely cannot process, process these things. And um, to conduct our research, we need dozens of samples. So we're talking thousands and thousands of, of, of uh, gigabytes and uh, things that we cannot store on local computers. And that's where high-performance computing come to the rescue. The good thing is, before, prior to probably 2015, the bottleneck in these studies used to be the cost of sequencing and the speed of sequencing. Generating a genome would take a week or two to sequence, and then um, the cost of it was, was prohibitive. For comparison, the first human genome cost, more, cost several hundred millions of dollars. Now we can generate a single, a high quality human genome for less than a thousand. So the problem shifted really from the speed of sequencing and the cost of it to the, to storing the data and processing the data. And um, high performance computing, uh, I mean, our university got an excellent platform. The problem is we are generating as a research group, we are generating more data every year than the IT department can keep up with. Uh, they can't buy storage and CPU fast enough. So that's where cloud computing comes to the rescue comes to the rescue. It allows us to scale our storage and our analyses 
almost instantaneously and it offers us virtually unlimited resources. Processing a single sample on the university server would take roughly 24 hours, 48 hours. On the cloud, we can do it in a matter of hours, but also in parallel. So we can get all our samples processed at the same time in a matter of hours, which is absolutely incredible, incredible in terms of efficiency of research, because instead of spending days setting up the analyses and having them, and, and also there's data hygiene and data management that goes with that, because you have limited space, you have to clean up very, very often, you have to move things around, in the cloud, you don't have that problem. You use as much as you need. And then at the end of the day, once you finish your analysis, you have your input, you have your output, and that's all you care about. And you, you don't care about the intermediate files. So it's, it's, it's that scalability and ease of access and ease of use that's absolutely powerful, which instead of spending three or four weeks analyzing the data, you actually spend three or four weeks thinking about the results and interpreting them and actually getting to the crux of the research you want to do. For more of the latest tech news, be sure to tune in to NITV Radio on Wednesdays and NOLA on NITV and SBS on Fridays, where I'll be giving the latest updates. The Royal Commission into National Natural Disaster Arrangements, the Black Summer Bushfire Royal Commission, has concluded and released its report. The inquiry was called in the wake of the devastating 2019-2020 summer bushfire season, but it looked at Australia's readiness for and response to all natural disasters. The 80 recommendations provide advice on the coordination of all levels of government during emergencies, warning systems for the public, firefighting resources, climate data, the role of the Australian Defence Force and how charities and other groups can best respond in the wake of disasters. Wiradjuri man and Associate Professor Michael Fletcher, who is a biogeographer and the Assistant Dean Indigenous at the University of Melbourne, he said that the Royal Commission into National Natural Disaster Arrangements report has missed a golden opportunity to insert Indigenous cultural burning into the mix of approaches for mitigating against an ever-increasing risk of climate-driven catastrophic bushfire. He says, in doing so, it has failed in its mission to pave a sustainable and effective way forward for landscape managers. Indigenous people presided over a healthy Australian landscape for millennia and the wave of catastrophic bushfires and species extinctions following the British invasion is directly attributed to the removal of cultural burning and other Indigenous management practices, he says. Now, Associate Professor Fletcher said the soft language used in the two recommendations pertaining to Indigenous land management state that Australian, state, territory and local governments merely should explore and engage with Indigenous communities. He said these recommendations provide no clear directive and allows these agencies too much wiggle room to maintain the status quo, which locks Aboriginal people out of country and continues to prioritise failed approaches based on the myth that we can fight and even win a battle against fire. Associate Professor Fletcher said that it is beyond time 
for Australia to wake up and look to the knowledge of its first peoples on how to live and operate appropriately in this country. I sat down with Michael for an hour-long conversation about cultural burning and its role in mitigating the impacts of climate change. Now, you can find the link to that talk on my social media at Ray Johnston. My guest this episode is Cabrigal woman Michaela Jade. Mick is the founder of Indigital, Australia's first Indigenous Indigitech company specialising in technology development and digital skills training in augmented and mixed realities, artificial intelligence, machine learning, the Internet of Things and geospatial technologies. Mick is currently working on a project using Minecraft for decolonisation, but I'll let her tell you more about it. Take it black. Michaela, how are you? I'm good. How are you, Ray? Yeah, really good. Good. So uh, every one of these interviews that we do for Take It Black special STEM episodes start with the same question. Who's your mob? Where are you from? My mob is the Cabrigal people from the Georges River and Liverpool area of the Sydney Basin. Wonderful. And Michaela, have you always been a bit of a geek? I've always been a geek. I remember um, having to run into the toilet to hide from my family in order to be able to play Pac-Man back in the day. So it probably gives you an indication of my age. Um, and Space Invaders, they were my two faves. So it was always the, the techiest stuff, the video games and the yep. like. Yeah, it totally was. Yeah, I was quite addicted. And then, you know, the Sega came along and I was addicted to Alex Kidd for a while. And, yeah, I think um, I've always had a bit of a passion for computing and computers, maybe even secretly when I turned into a teenage girl. <laughs> Wonderful. And tell me a little bit about Indigital. What is Indigital? What do you do there? Yeah, what do we do? So we started off doing augmented and mixed reality Indigenous storytelling on, on country. And that was incredibly powerful, but also incredibly expensive. And I got a lot of requests from community around the world to work with them to create augmented reality for their mobs. And I just realised that it shouldn't be me doing all this. So we pivoted in digital this year to an edutech company um, where we have a platform that empowers all peoples around the world to make augmented reality storytelling for their language, law and knowledge much cheaply, much, much more cheaply. <laughs> When did you start working on all of these kinds of projects? Because you know, it's it's difficult to imagine just jumping straight into doing augmented reality storytelling just out of nothing. How did how did you get to this point? Where were you working before you started in digital? How did you get here? How did I get here? So I was a park ranger for 21 years, and I worked in the Great Barrier Reef and in Ningaloo and Kakadu. And I started looking at augmented reality in 2012, um, where I accidentally came across it at a university um, government jam that I was at and just became enamoured with the technology and really could see the opportunity and potential for cultural storytelling. And when I was a park ranger, I basically bootstrapped my company. So I was working with, in, in digital in all the other hours that I wasn't being a park ranger. And I only actually stopped being a park ranger in February this year to concentrate on the business full time. So it's been 
a really long time, Ray, nine years um, to get to this point and making lots of mistakes in the technology and in the way that we worked with the technology um, until we really refined what our product offering was, um, which now is into the education sector. Nice. And, and how do you find people who want to tell their stories through augmented reality that want people to consume them in this way? Well, people usually reach out to us. So I guess when we made our first minimum viable product in Kakadu, there was five traditional stories that were told through the, our first application. And that kind of went a little bit crazy and got a little bit famous across the world, I guess. And so people came across our work through our work at the UN and more recently the World Economic Forum. And we shared those um, cards that we triggered the augmented reality through very widely. So a lot of people got to see the tech. And I think that's how people find us is they've been able to see the card somewhere in community or somewhere um, internationally and they like what they see and they can see the opportunity for their own people to get involved. So we get about five to eight inquiries a day at the moment um, for people wanting to work in this kind of technology, which is really exciting. Now, when I, when I think of being a ranger and then I think of being a, an AR developer, they seem like two very different skill sets. How do you jump from one to the other? Did you do any kind of formal study or did you just wing it? Yeah, I winged it. I come from the School of YouTube Education. So, Amazing. Um, <laughs> when I first saw the, um, the technology, Ray, I was like, I need to know how to do this. So I started Googling um, companies that work in augmented reality and basically begging for people to teach me the technology. And eventually someone said that they would teach me and he was a man in England. And so I'd go and do my ranger job during the day. And then at about 11 o'clock at night, I would get on Skype and Jason would teach me what he called the dark arts of augmented reality. So Wonderful. <laughs> Yeah, how to do image recognition, how to do photogrammetry, um, how to what the animation workflow is, and all that kind of stuff. So, yeah, I learned from him first, and then um, just tried different like softwares and kind of cobbled together a whole bunch of technologies to make the app really. That's amazing. And do you still use YouTube today to teach you how yeah. to do new things? I really do. YouTube <laughs> is the best, and. Getting involved in communities, so I've just recently joined the Blender community, um, which is an animation software um, community. And, yeah, there's lots of communities that you can join to get involved in this kind of technology. So it's becoming um, more available to people to really teach themselves how to do it. But we, um, we thought we'd make that a bit easier for Mob and teach Mob through a cultural lens so we can see ourselves in the technology. Um, rather than just getting baffled by people's jargon um, in all these communities that are online. Yeah, for sure. And what project are you working on right now within digital? I heard it's something to do with Minecraft. <laughs> yeah. So uh, together with the National Centre for Indigenous Digital Excellence um, and in digital and Telstra and Microsoft and Minecraft, we're running the National NADOC Minecraft Challenge and it's the first time this has ever been done in Australia. So we're working with 25 schools and 1,000 kids in NADOC Week, getting them to work in both our platform and Minecraft to address the question, how would you in 2030 make your town, city, community or school using Indigenous science, technology, engineering, arts and mathematics? Amazing. Um, 
Yeah, so we're trying to get our kids to imagine what future they would like to build using the Minecraft um, game and also our technology. Why is a project like this important? Uh, We've had lots of discussions about why we're doing this. Um, So first and foremost for InDigital, what we're trying to do is position our people to have a stake and a design stake in the future of technology in the fourth industrial revolution. So there's a lot of new technologies that are being designed and developed now where first people don't have a seat at the table currently to influence those designs. So the technologies actually work for our people and we're not excluded. So we're trying to provide a pathway of opportunity for our young people into those industries. Um, and secondly, we, we have rights as Indigenous peoples to imagine our own futures and a great way to imagine the future and to really conceptualise and visualise what we would like to create for ourselves is through gaming. Um, so we thought Minecraft was a really great alignment for achieving that. Minecraft's been used to do so many you know, things, especially in the education space over the last few years. I think this is the most original that I've heard of, though. I've heard it being used to teach you know, things like chemistry, but I, I think that this is in, this is incredible. This is really creative. I'm really excited to see the results of this. Oh, me too. We got some um, designs through this morning that kids have already created um, in anticipation for the challenge. And there is a Swan River dreaming story where the kids have created the Swan River area where they live. They've created um, their emu. They've created um, their community. And they've told this story through an animation using Minecraft and the combination of um, three-dimensional character development. So it's pretty incredible. Um, And it really just brings home to me that you know, talent is equally distributed and opportunity is not. And if we can only just get the devices and the tools into the hands of our kids, they can do incredible things with it. Yeah, there is a massive digital divide in this country. What can you tell me about the, the access, the opportunities that different kids have? Yeah, it's been really interesting working on this challenge with a thousand kids across the country because... We can't just assume that people in remote communities are the ones that don't have access to digital technologies. We're finding that kids in Western Sydney and urban areas around Australia struggle to have access to the technology sometimes more than kids in really remote communities. So it's it's been challenging to try and get the devices in the hands of these kids that want to play in the challenge. And also working with teachers who are really hamstrung by um, different IT policies and there doesn't seem to be like a standard way to manage uh, culture in computing at the moment. So we're, we're trying to work with communities and get them to set up frameworks that help them in the future to really um, embrace these opportunities. How has this challenge or even just the work that you do at in digital been impacted by the pandemic? Uh, yeah, so we basically launched our edutech company in June in the start of the pandemic Um, and that was really hard because we had always envisioned that we would be able to work face-to-face with our communities um, and be on country to provide support because teaching technology online sounds like it would be really easy but it's actually pretty hard. Um, So we had to pivot our whole business model around how we deliver digital skills education to regional and remote communities. 
it has been done online for the last few months and that's been okay. Um, and it's helped us really reach communities that would have been difficult to travel to in, the, in COVID. Um, but yeah, I think it, it's really shown us where the digital divide is so we could re- concentrate more on where we want to make an impact. Yeah, I mean, even internet access isn't even across the country as well. So there's there's a lot of challenges there that you've overcome. So well done. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I've got an amazing team um, that I work with and obviously our partners help us where they can as well. So we're, we've set the vision and we're running towards the target of upskilling an entire generation of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander kids in these fourth industrial revolution technologies and yeah just a small goal nothing nothing too big just upskilling an entire generation (laughs) do you have any aspirations or do you currently work with any other organizations that have similar goals in the space yeah so it's been good we've been able to work with organizations like grain polypharma foundation the western australian police force have um, worked with us on a local community project in WA and there's a few Aboriginal organisations that are approaching us at the moment to partner, which is really exciting. That is exciting. Yeah, I think that's where we'll get the most impact for everyone because a lot of these programs are looking for opportunities to incorporate STEM and we're looking for opportunities for outreach. So, um, yeah, we're really excited to be contacted by these groups who have already vast networks into the education system and um, yeah we're all about networking networks right so if we we can do that I think that's a great way of doing it. Do you have any advice for kids out there that you know want to get involved in tech but don't know what the right path is for them? Yeah I do because I started like that so I didn't know really much besides you know, playing Pac-Man and um, Space Invaders about tech because I was a park ranger. So we spent a lot of time in the bush um, doing manual kind of labour stuff. Um, I think just getting excited, like listening really to what excites you in the world and then looking at how can technology be applied to that to support what you want to do or to, um, to make it more exciting or to make it better for you. So, and YouTube as I mentioned, is a really great place to start to see what other people are doing. But if it's specifically around animation and graphic design um, and culture, there is a cultural animators network, which is global on Facebook. Um, so you can you can kind of find these niche groups of people that are working in similar kind of technologies that you might be interested in. And that's a really great way to connect with other people and learn even more about different types of software that can help you achieve your goal. And how can people get involved in what you're doing at Indigital? Do you do you take help if someone wants to come along and say, hey, I want to give you a hand, I want to spread the word, what can I do? Yeah, we do, t- we do love partnering with people, but what we do have a policy in our company that everyone that works within Digital gets paid because I've seen for 21 years Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people's being expected to work as volunteers and not having their contributions valued. So our company policy is that anyone that works with us gets paid. Um, So we do have um, opportunities that might be coming up, which keep an eye on our website for that. But just um, if you're wanting to work in your school, we have 
a website with a form on it um, which directs you to the right person in our company that can get the conversation started about bringing in digital schools to your school. Amazing. Thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. Uh, thank you, Ray. Thanks for having me. That was Michaela Jade from InDigital. If you enjoyed this episode, please let us know. Give us a rating, share it with your friends, subscribe. And if there's anything STEM-related you'd like to know more about, hit me up on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, if you must, at Ray Johnston, and I'll make sure it's covered in the next STEM episode. Until then, remember to take it black. SBS is Australia's most trusted multilingual broadcaster. Our listeners are loyal, highly engaged and have supported countless local businesses. We offer advertising packages for businesses of all sizes. Our experienced sales team will guide you through the process of owning a great campaign. Bring your own ad or have our production team make you something in one of our 68 languages. Start the conversation with your new audience today. Email sales at sbs.com.au.